Hello, Texans. I'm Susanna, and this is The Susanna Gibbs Show. On this podcast, we focus on Texas, the artists, entrepreneurs, and idealists that make up this very, very interesting state. The culture of this state, as this last summer proved, you have to be a little bit tough to live here. Some of that Texas identity was crafted by our history, the stand at the Alamo, cowboy culture, the oil business, the profound and deep love for God and football. Texas chose to be in the United States, and some may say we can choose to leave here at any time. My next guest could not be any more Texas, despite abandoning us for the more temperate summers of Pennsylvania. Doug Swanson is with us today, and his book, Cult of Glory, explores our history, specifically that of the Texas Rangers. And it is a juicy tale, going back to when Stephen F. Austin first stepped foot in the state to develop it. At times, Rangers are the hero and at times the anti-hero. I hope you enjoy the discussion. I am your host, Susanna Gibb, and the owner of Gibb Insurance Services, the sponsor of this podcast. We proudly serve all of Texas for your home, auto, health insurance, and commercial insurance needs. I actually started doing insurance as a side hustle for my acting career, and once upon a time, I worked with a very famous Texas Ranger, one Walker Texas Ranger, Chuck Norris. He's a very nice man. It was a great show, great set to work on, and it was my start in the film business. But that is a story for another day. I hope you enjoy Doug's story and the story of Texas and the Rangers. And now, on with the show. On the podcast with me today is Doug Swanson. He is the author of a few books, but specifically the one we're going to talk about today is the short title, Cult of Glory, and I'm just going to read a little bit before we get started, because it's about the Texas Rangers. Their emergence as folk heroes on horseback, initially a product of their service in the Mexican War, predated by several decades the rise of the American cowboy. Their battles with Indians came well in advance of many historic conflicts with Native Americans in the western United States, and they were shooting it out with outlaws long before Wyatt Earp drew down on the Clanton Gang in Tombstone, Arizona. The unfaltering romance of the western frontier in all its epic violence, grandeur, and oversimplifications took root and was nurtured in Texas with the Rangers. Doug, thanks for being here. Hi, Susanna. Thank you for having me. So your, I'm just going to start with your bibliography. I'm going to start with the end. How long did you research this book? Well, the researching and the writing and the editing, I mean, it all mishmashes together. It took about six years. So I'm, I'm reading it on both the Kindle and the paperback is on its way. But I thought it was fascinating. In the Kindle, you can go in the bibliography and literally click and it will take you to different portions of the book. How many pages of the bibliography do you think there are? 43. 43. How did no, you find all I'm these sorry. sources? That's bibliography and endnotes. That's okay. combined. You know, footnotes, in this case, they're endnotes, and the bibliography. It's 43 pages. How did I find that's them? That's tremendous. Well, uh, you know, that's just doing normal research, going to libraries. I spent a lot of time in the Texas State Library and Archives across the street from the state capitol in Austin, which is where the official Ranger records are archived. And you can go through and read them. They're, they're cataloged by date. And you can start in the 1800s and work your way up to 
current day and sit there. Uh, a lot of people who sit there for months and months and months on end reading those things. I spent many weeks there. I also spent a lot of time in the uh, Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin, which has a lot of Ranger records as well. And they're scattered around the state in, uh, in museums and collections. I mean, there are some out at Sol Ross State University. There are some down in southeast Texas. There are some up in the Panhandle. I mean, they're all over the place. What was your role with the Dallas Morning News? I was there for more than 30 years. I started as a reporter and was a reporter on the national desk for a long time. Uh, back when newspapers had national desks, I was a national correspondent. But for the uh, last 15 to 20 years or so, I was an investigative reporter and editor, uh, looking mostly at state government. Uh, covered the Iraq War for a while. Uh, did a lot of different things, but uh, I was there for a long time. So digging around, investigating was nothing new to you when you no, were doing this book. That's what I like to do. You know, I'm, I'm one of those guys who loves to sit in the basement of a little courthouse in a small town going through dusty old records. That's my idea of fun. I learned so much from your book, which is, I love history. Um, and I could tell that you did a ton of work. I did not know that Stephen F. Austin was 27 years old when he came to Texas. Yeah, he was uh, fulfilling his, uh, his father's wishes, Moses Austin. Uh, they wanted to set up uh, settlements in Texas, and the Mexican government invited them in, uh, much to the Mexican government's regret later, because obviously they lost Texas, uh, as it turned out. But he was a young man, uh, came in to, uh, to Texas to uh, lead among the first settlers, and uh, that's how it all started, as we know. What was the nearest... Was it New Orleans was one of the nearest cities? Yeah, I think New Orleans was probably the nearest real city. I mean, there were settlements in Louisiana. There were some settlements around Texas that had come and gone. You know, the Spanish had tried to settle parts of Texas and were driven out by the Native Americans. And there were some uh, Mexicans uh, living, especially down in the, in the valley along the Rio Grande, uh, now known as Tejanos. Uh, but uh, Texas was largely empty territory, except for the Native Americans, when Austin and his uh, settlers showed up. What did they think about the, uh, they were, I can't, Catonquas, is that right? Caracawa, yeah. And okay. Close, what are, did they think about? You combine two. There are the Tonkawa Indians and there are the Caracawa Indians. But uh, yeah, the Caracawas, Caracawa were the first ones that Austin saw on his first trip to Texas. He came in from Louisiana and he encountered the Karankawa. Uh, the Karankawa were generally a coastal tribe living down around Galveston and the Padre Island in there. Uh, they were remarkable in a lot of ways. Uh, for one, they were really big, you know, muscular. Um, they coated themselves in alligator grease to, to keep the mosquitoes off. They were tattooed. Uh, they were rumored to be cannibals, although that was uh, very much an exaggeration. But Austin took one look at them and decided on the spot that for Anglos to succeed in Texas, the Karanka would, would have to be exterminated. So that was the mission he set forth almost immediately. 
Wow. What are the other tribes, is that the right word, of Indians who were present in Texas during that time? Well, I'm not going to get all of them, but there were the Caddo, uh, the Cherokee had a big presence. Uh, farther west were the uh, Apaches and most significantly the Comanche, very fearsome tribe. And at the time, uh, Texas was settled by Anglos, by white people. Uh, the Comanches were were considered the most powerful Native American tribe in North America. They were very fierce fighters and uh, were quite feared for good reason by the settlers. Why did they, because they were amazing. There's so many reports of them as amazing horsemen. Right. They, how did they do so well with those little Spanish horses? You know, it was a kind of a melding of man and beast because before they got the horses, the, the Comanches were a fairly marginal tribe uh, living up in Colorado and Wyoming uh, in that area, well, what is now Colorado and Wyoming. And then when they got the horses, you know, these Spanish horses, the Mustangs, uh, there was this uh, symbiosis that had never been seen. They just adapted to each other. And this allowed the, the Comanches to spread down through what is now Kansas and Oklahoma into Texas and into Mexico. There was this vast territory that they controlled for a couple of hundred years. I always thought, and I think this is a pretty typical myth about the Native American Indians of them as a very spiritual, tied to the earth um, society. But that's really kind of a myth as well. Well, I don't know. I mean, they were, I, I, I guess they were spiritual and they were tied to the earth because they, that's where they got their food. They didn't go down to the grocery store. Uh, but, you know, it, it varied from tribe to tribe. The, the, the Comanches very much were that way. The Cherokees, however, in East Texas were uh, making an effort to assimilate, for better word, for, for lack of a better word, I mean, to get along. With, with the white settlers to an extent. I mean, they had schools, they had farms, uh, they had a written language, all of that. So it, it varies from, from tribe to tribe. And uh, you, can't, you can't paint it with a broad brush, I suppose. Mm, that's fair. The Comanches, on the other hand, were not, would you, would you call them more primitive? I, I wouldn't say more primitive. I think that's... Uh, is that a terrible well, thing to say? Well, you know, that, that's, that's the reason that, that uh, one of the reasons that the Anglos, and I keep using the word Anglos, I know Anglo means from England and not all the white settlers were from England, but I'm using that as a shorthand. Uh, the Anglos often use the term primitive and savage as an excuse to kill Native Americans. So I think we ought, probably ought to stay away from that, that nomenclature. But uh, yeah, by, by our standards, I mean, they lived, they lived off the land. They lived in a subsistence way. They killed their food and, and ate it on the spot. They moved around, many of them, and they were, they were uh, nobads in a way. I mean, the, the Comanches and others followed the buffalo herds around. They, they moved uh, according to the season. Uh, the Karankawa lived on uh, shellfish and fish and, uh, and some of the wildlife they caught. But uh, to, to call them savages, I, you know, I think that betrays maybe a, a certain... Uh, cultural bias. Okay, fair, fair. There was obviously huge conflict between the settlers and 
the Native Americans, which is what kind of gave rise to the Rangers, right? Right. And who was it? Stephen F. Austin, who was like, "All right, we got to get this Ranger thing." He, going. he was one. Yeah, he was one of the parties. I mean, there were there were also uh, calls from elsewhere, but the idea was uh, they would set up a sort of uh, small militia to fight the Native Americans. And in the case of the Rangers, they got ten men who went down the Colorado River in southeast Texas and set up a blockhouse, a little fort uh, with supplies uh, to, to kind of protect the settlers. But they ran out of ammunition and soon ran out of food after a few months and came back and never really fought any, uh, any Indians at all. Now, later, as the Rangers expanded and as the disputes between the settlers and the Indians expanded, uh, the Rangers played a bigger role in fighting the the Cherokees fighting the others, certainly in fighting the Comanches. Uh, there was this whole line of settlement from about, oh, Jacksboro up in, in North Texas, straight down south to around Austin, San Antonio, that was called the Bleeding Frontier. And people literally bled on that frontier because that's where the settlers met the Comanches. And uh, there was a lot of terrible fighting that went on, very brutal. Uh, for many years, and the Rangers were were part of that. Would yeah. you? What's what's the Comanche Moon? Uh, the Comanche Moon, and, and you, you're you're mentioning uh, or you're alluding to a, a great book by a friend of mine, Empire of the Summer Moon, by S. C. Gwynn, which is about the Comanches. Uh, the the Summer Moon, the Comanche Moon, is the Comanches traveled at night often, and they often attacked settlers at night. And they, uh, they really liked to do it uh, when the moon was full and the weather was warm. So that's the, uh, the summer moon or the Comanche moon. So the settlers, the Anglos, who were along this bleeding frontier, in the summertime when the moon was full, that was a, uh, that was a time of terror for them. Mm. So there are so many stories in this book that... Um... I thought that's a movie. That's a movie. That's a character. That's a movie. Oh my God. Like it's so exciting. It's so many times and there's too many stories to even tell. So I'm just going to grab a couple of them. Um, the, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the council house fight? Yeah, that was in San Antonio. And now I'm going to misremember the year. Maybe you can refresh my memory. Oh, I don't have it handy in front of me. Um, 40s, I think, 1840s, maybe? Yeah, and and there was supposed to be a peace council between the Comanches and the the Anglos in San Antonio. Uh, And uh, the Comanches came in, uh, but they also brought uh, a uh, woman with them who had been kidnapped much earlier. Uh, The Comanches were big on kidnapping women and children, and sometimes they would trade them. Uh, or sell them, and sometimes they would keep them as their hostages or their slaves. Sometimes they would raise them as their own. But they brought in one uh, woman who, according to lore, had been tortured badly. Her nose had been almost burned off her face and uh, had been very badly mistreated. Now there's some debate now as to whether she was really that badly tortured. But a terrible fight broke out, and uh, and and the Comanches who came in for this uh, peace settlement were pretty much massacred in place. And this led to much more fighting uh, down the road between the Anglos and the Rangers and, and the Comanches. And this is the way it went on and on and on for years 
for decades. One side would attack the other, and then there would be more vengeance to come. So this happened all the time. I also really loved, and I'm going to read this one because it's really, it's good writing. It's compelling stuff, but that it's, somebody reported it, that it's true. Okay, so this is from uh, the Siege of San Elizario, 1877. With that, Howard ripped open his shirt, bearing his chest and shouted, fire. They did. Howard fell to the ground where he kicked and squirmed. An insurgent named Jesus Tellus stood over him with a machete and swung the blade toward the writhing figure. Tellus missed his target and cut off two of his own toes. Yeah, you got to be careful with those machetes. Oh, you know? Uh, That was out in West Texas. Uh, That was out in in the Big Bend area. and there There was a big salt deposit out there. And for decades, the locals, mostly Hispanic, said, Come and pulled their salt from this salt deposit for free. I mean, it was sort of a public good, and they used salt for uh, curing meat and other things. And some uh, Anglos, enterprising Anglos, came in and decided they were going to uh, start charging admission to the uh, salt deposits. And so the uh, Hispanics erupted. There was some fighting. The Rangers came in. And this was uh, the one instance in all of history where the Rangers surrendered surrendered en masse, gave up their weapons and uh, held up their hands and were taken prisoner uh, because they were outgunned and outmaneuvered uh, in this case. Uh, and some of them, as you as you just showed, some of them were executed. Who are the, who are the men who decided, I'm, I'm going to be a ranger? Back in the day or now? Back in the day. Back in the day. Well, that's, uh, that was often complicated. You know, sometimes it was... Uh, who you knew, whether you're, uh, whether you're, uh, one of your relatives was powerful enough to know the governor. Sometimes it was just that uh, you were a good writer and a good shot, and the Rangers needed men. Um, you know, records are sketchy, going back to the earliest days of the Rangers. It's sometimes hard to know who was a Ranger and who wasn't. Uh, Rangers weren't well paid. Uh, they often left for better jobs. Sometimes they would come and spend just a few months as Rangers and and go do something else. Uh, but, you know, if you were in the right place at the right time and uh, and you had a horse and a gun and uh, the Rangers needed somebody, you could be signed up. Definitely looking, a sense of adventure would be yeah. Yeah, you would need one a sense of the prerequisites. Of yeah, you, yeah, you needed to be tough. I mean, let's not, let's not short uh, change these, uh, these early Rangers. These were tough, tough guys. They slept outside in the rain, sometimes the snow. Uh, I've got story after story of rangers who were shot in the head and, you know, walked 50 miles to, to the nearest settlement. Uh, there, there were some rangers out there, you know, who were just riddled with arrows and kept on fighting. Rangers lost legs, they lost arms, they lost eyes and kept on going. I mean, these were tough people who you had to like to fight. I guess that was the yeah. word qualification. Well, there is, so the model ranger has long been depicted as tall, steely-eyed, and strong-jawed. He shoots straight. Um, The Marlboro Man comes to mind, or if you are um, fans of the Dark Tower series, the Gunslingers. Um, I did not realize that the Lone Ranger is possible, he's a Texas Ranger. Supposedly, yeah. Uh, That was the idea. I mean, it was dreamt up by a guy out of Detroit, I think, Detroit or Cleveland. 
can't remember, uh, but you know, it's strictly uh, radio drama and later TV and movies. But uh, yeah, he was supposed to be a Lone Ranger whose company had been massacred, and and uh, so he rode around fighting crime. But that's just part of the myth, you know, the great myth around the Rangers that uh, Hollywood has been complicit in assembling. Uh, mm. That, as you say, this tall, steely-eyed, justice-seeking uh, man of uh, superhuman strength—it's uh, all a myth. It's all—it's all you know, silly. But uh, that's the myth that's grown up. What are some of the the darker things about the Rangers? Because history—it's complicated when you look back in history. Sure. The, as... the temptation is to judge based on our current notion of what's right and wrong and their idea of right and wrong uh was very different not that i'm excusing any of the things that were done wrong and i think there were quite a few well you're right it's complicated and history by its very nature is complicated and that's the way we should look at it and let's for example look at the role of the rangers in the early 1900s along the rio grande down in the rio grande valley uh Mexico was in revolution. There were bandits coming across the border from Mexico and raiding Texas ranches and killing people and, and stealing cattle. I mean, it was a brutal time. But the brutality was going both ways. The, the rangers came in and operated what we now call death squads. And they went out and they killed hundreds of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, uh, some innocent, some not. But uh, they were acting on behalf of the Anglo power structure, which wanted to come in and seize land in South Texas, land that had been in the, in, in many cases, uh, had belonged to the Tejanos for generations, but uh, now it was valuable land. And so the Rangers were used to force these people off their land. Uh, they were burned out. They were sent packing. In some cases, they were killed. Uh, and the Rangers were... Uh, again, engaging in what we now call uh, the actions of death squads. So they were used against the Native American Indians, the Mexican Americans. Were there other uses for the Rangers that were less so uh, sunny? Well, look, they did fight crime. Let's give them that. I mean, we, have to, we have to give the Rangers their justification. I mean, there were a lot of criminals in Texas at the time. Uh, we can look, for example, at the, at the town of Borger up in the Texas Panhandle, which was nothing up there until someone struck oil. And then it became mm. an oil boom town. Now, the, the history of oil boom towns in Texas is fascinating because uh, people flooded in there to make money and some were legitimate businessmen. And a lot of them were criminals and grifters and prostitutes and gamblers and killers. And they uh, soon controlled the town. Uh, often the authorities were crooked or uh, in cahoots with the, uh, with the outlaws. And so in the case of Borger, the rangers came in to, to try to uh, establish order, which they didn't, really. Uh, they tried, but were unsuccessful. And in the end, uh, a lot of the citizens of Borger insisted that the rangers had become just as crooked uh, as the outlaws. So it was often a mixed bag. Now in other towns, uh, the rangers came in and pacified things and uh, and moved on. But it was it had very much a mixed record in this regard. And I I have as my note they had a big reckoning in 1934. 
Yeah, what happened was uh, Ma Ferguson had become governor of Texas, and she uh, fired all the regular rangers and uh, and put her cronies on the force, and they were about as crooked as you can imagine, you know, operating saloons and gambling establishments and shakedowns and all that. And what, once Ferguson was out of office, uh, the rangers were almost abolished at that point. But the legislature in Texas established the Department of Public Safety and put the rangers under DPS, where they remain now. Uh, but that's the beginning of the rangers' evolution as a more uh, professional force, a, a real police force with training and standards and credentials. Now, it, it was very much a, a case of two steps forward, one back, three sideways, and, and four, <laughs> four around the corner. I mean, they a lot of bad things happened between 1934, 1935, and, and today. But that's where we see the beginning of the Rangers as we understand them now. So did you enjoy researching all this book? Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, at the time I was living in Texas. I don't live in Texas anymore, but uh, at the time uh, I went all over the state, which is always a lot of fun. And as I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I like going through those dusty records. But what was really fun is there are so many great stories about the Rangers. Oh. I mean, I, I couldn't put them all in. Uh, that's maybe why there have been about 500 books written about the Rangers. There, there are just so many great tales out there and, and fantastic characters. Uh, it just never stops. Yeah, my inner storyteller movie maker was like well there's one and there's one and there's another character and there's one and i love historical fiction and there's just so much in there so i i thought it was a great look or a character study which is an oversimplification of the rangers the good and the bad what do what do the rangers think about you in this book uh, well, when you say the Rangers, I'm going to talk about the agency itself and their supporters. I mean, there, there's this okay. great, great group of Ranger supporters out there. I mean, the Rangers are 200 years old this year, and there's, there's a bicentennial going on all over the state. There's uh, a museum in Waco about there's a museum them. museum in Waco. No, the museum in Waco, they, they didn't like me at all. Uh, they, they did oh, not no. like the book. And, I, you know, I knew they didn't like the book. Um, well, that's what Why happens. Why don't they like the book? Well, I mean, you look, you write a book, you send it out there, it goes on the shelves. People either go to the library and get it or they pay their hard-earned money and buy it. And, you know, some people like it and some people don't. That's that's part of writing a book. And, you know, you get the good reviews, you get the bad reviews and all that. But the Texas Ranger Museum in Waco is a city museum funded by taxpayers. And the, that museum, that's the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum, is very much devoted to promoting the Rangers and their myth, the one, the myth we addressed earlier. I mean, if anybody's been to that museum, uh, you would have seen that that's, that's what they do there. Um, so I knew they didn't like the book, and I wrote a, a, an op-ed for the Washington Post after the book came out that compared that museum to the, some of the lost cause of the Confederacy museums across the South that are still promoting the idea that the Civil War was the war of Northern aggression and slavery maybe wasn't all that bad, that sort of thing. And Wow, I, you came out swinging with the museum. Well, I did. 
<laughs> they didn't. They didn't like that. But that was in, no. I wouldn't think so. That was in 2020, which when the book came out. So uh, three years later, I was talking to uh, a man named Russell Molina, who was in charge of the Texas Ranger Bicentennial, and he told me, "Well, we've got a dossier on you." I said, "Well, that's cool. I've never had a dossier before." He said, "Yeah, we got one at the Ranger Museum." All right, just pause. Was he actually this conversational, or was he? He was combative. Was the conversation co- okay? He was. He didn't like me either. I, mean, I got a dossier on you, Mister. That, that was pretty much the way it was. I, it was. <laughs> it was. Hey, we know all about you. We got a dossier. Did you feel threatened? No. <laughs> no. Okay. But, you know, like he was going to show up on your door. Hey, the only guy I was afraid would show up on my doorstep was Chuck Norris. You know, Walker, Texas Ranger, <laughs> and give me a big roundhouse kick to the head. But uh, no, I no, I felt threatened. But I did feel I was curious, and you know, my my background as an investigative reporter kicked in, and I thought, well, the the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame is a city museum, means they're a government museum, which means they're subject to the Texas Public Information Act. So I filed an open records request with the city of Waco for everything that mentioned, every email, every memo, every letter that mentioned uh, me or my book going back to 2020. And I thought, well, I'll get nothing or I'll get a few pages. But after a couple of months, they sent me this electronic file, a digital file. And if you printed it out, it would run to uh, about 2,000 pages. And oh, my gosh. It, it, it laid out an effort by Mr. Molina and the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame, and the Rangers themselves, and a public relations firm in Houston that they hired to discredit me and my book and to try to get reviewers to come out and, and attack the book and get other people to attack the book. And, and it just went on and on and on. As I said, you write a book, some people like it, some people don't. I mean, you're, you know, everyone's free to give their opinion on it. That's, that's the way this stuff works. However, I think it's different when a when a government institution is attacking the book and spending public money to attack me and, and, and attack the book. Uh, and also, uh, there are some confidentiality clauses of the Public Information Act that apply to researchers in public libraries. And I believe that they disclosed some information about me in public libraries that... Uh, was not permissible under the law, but mm. that's a, a smaller part. Anyway, uh, that was my dossier. I don't think they were uh, great dossier builders. This seemed pretty inept uh, in a lot of ways, but it was their attempt to uh, come after me. And and from what I can tell, uh, the only effect it had was after the Dallas Morning News wrote a story about the dossier a while back, it seemed to boost book sales quite a bit. Why do... I just think the public has a fascination with both the good and the bad. Like you think about how many stinking Bonnie and Clyde movies have been made and they were really terrible individuals and ruthless, but there's a myth about them. What do the Rangers feel like exposing their dirty underbelly is really such a bad thing? Apparently so. (laughs) It didn't, they didn't go for that. I think. It's uh, in big part, a big part of it is they are selling this myth that some people are making money off of it. Uh, and that's what sells. I mean, people, people love these stories. I love these stories. I, I, uh, 
I love to watch a good movie about a heroic figure, uh, but that's not history. Uh, that's, again, that's the romance. That's the myth. That's the story, uh, but it's not necessarily the truth. It may be a small slice of the truth, but uh, the, the bigger part is ignored or swept under the rug. Uh, I think that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake by the rangers themselves not to more fully embrace their history uh, and more fully embrace uh, the people who were victimized. That doesn't mean the rangers now are horrible. It doesn't mean the entire agency has been discredited. I think it would actually be a credit to be a, uh, uh, make the agency appear stronger if they were to embrace their full history. But those outside the agency itself, those who sell these books and run these halls of fame and, and have their concerts and their rodeos and all that celebrating the Rangers, nothing wrong with that except they uh, won't face up to a lot of the facts. And I think that's a mistake. Is there, is revisionist history a problem now across the board or has it been a problem for forever and now we're just becoming more aware of it where like history is defined by the people who live to tell the tale and their interpretation of it well a lot of people tried to tell the tale of what the rangers did uh down on the border for example there's a great catalog of scholarship and history about uh the Rangers' misbehavior and atrocities along the border. Uh, a lot of it has been forgotten. A lot of it was just uh, swept into the corner. A lot of it was ignored. I mean, I'm hardly the first person to come along and write about that. Uh, but uh, a lot of it just didn't get the attention that it deserved. I'm, I'm going to take a slight issue with your term revisionist history. I, I think what we're talking about is, is the full fullness of history. Uh, the, the, the forgotten history, perhaps, because I'm not trying to uh, change history. Uh, I'm just trying maybe to, in, in my own small way, uh, add to it and, and shine a little light in, in some dark corners uh, that are, are generally ignored. Uh, but the people who profit from the romance, they don't like to hear it. The um, some facets of our government, both on a, on a state and local level and on a federal level, are, are, are trying to quash it, I believe, which I think is a, is a terrible mistake. But that's all. Why are they opinion. trying to quash it? Well, you have to ask them, but why, why are the, why are the uh, people in, in charge of state government in Texas um, trying to shut down parts of libraries, trying to restrict what students read in school, trying to institute a curricula in school that uh, ignore vast parts of history and uh, and return to the romance. I, I don't know why they're doing that, except maybe they believe it helps keep them in power. I don't know why. I mean, there was a there was a really, I thought, terrific book that came out about the Alamo. Forget the Alamo. Uh, came out, what, a couple of years ago, which in, in the same way that we're talking, uh, examine the myth and, and, and shined a light uh, on, on the myth and showed that the myth doesn't always hold up to this light. And what happened? Well, the lieutenant governor of Texas uh, tried to ban them from the state historical library in, in Austin. But, you know, why not, uh, why not invite everybody in? Let everybody tell their story and, uh, and, and give everybody a chance to talk about their history, 
let's let's bring in the myth makers, but let's bring in the, the people down on the border, the Hispanics, whose families have been talking about ranger atrocities for generations. This is not something new to them. This is something that has been handed down uh, from from generation to generation for years and years, for you know, for for decades. Uh, let's hear their stories too. Do you feel like there's any case for a story to be banned? No, I, I think you know sometimes you have to uh, certainly give it perspective and context. I mean, we can't, for example, uh, talk about Nazis. And say, you know, well, on one hand, they did all these bad things, but on the other, you know, they did these good things. We, I mean, we have to call it for what it is. But no, I don't think there's any story that should not be uh, examined and uh, and judged. Sometimes now, yeah, you don't want to talk to first graders about uh, genocide, but uh, you don't want to kick it out of the collegiate curriculum simply because you don't like hearing those tales. That's a good, that's a good way to, good way to word it. I, I lied to you, Doug. I told you we'd be on for 30 minutes and um, we're over. Okay. I'm long And I'm sad. No, I had so many more questions that I want to talk to you about. Like I didn't even get to the fact how Jim Bowie bought slaves from Jean Lafitte. I was like, <laughs> what? There's so uh, many great things in your book. You know, I, I, I know I'm over time, but I, I got to say one thing. I, it's yeah, true. please do. We can't we can't judge people who operated in the past by our current standards. Yes, we can say slavery was horrible, obviously, uh, but it was something that happened in its time. Uh, so we can't assume that someone uh, working a farm in 1836 is going to act the same way we would act. We are acting now because they things were completely different, but. Uh, we can't overlook what really happened. So uh, we, we have to look at it with our modern eyes, try to understand what was happening, even though we're looking through our modern eyes. But we, we can't, uh, can't hide what really happened at the same time. That's true. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap no, it up? Thank you. Great interview. I loved it. We, thank you. Will you show your book and the whole title? Yeah. Well, it, uh, it doesn't come up backward on the screen. Which way I've got my screen oriented. Cult of Glory. Oh, it looks good. Old and brutal history of the Texas Rangers. That's a good cover right there. What's yeah. your other book? Do you have it handy that you can show? I'm going to read that one. I'm going to have you back uh, on. I'll be, I'll be, I have to go off camera. One sec. Okay. We'll talk bad about you while you're gone. I'm just my kidding. Previous book, <laughs> Blood Aces, The Wild Ride of Benny Binion, The Texas Gangster Who Created Vegas Poker. Which has uh, just been optioned by a uh, producer in Los Angeles for a film. We'll see what happens. You know, most most <gasps> most books that are optioned don't get made in, into film, but I'm hopeful on this one. Now well, that congratulations! That's exciting. Well, it's exciting if it ever gets made, but you know, <laughs> baby steps, right? Right, right. Well, thank you so much again for being here. I appreciate um, taking the time, and I'm going to read the other book and have you back. That's great. Thanks, Susanna. Had a good right, time. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Bye. I'm a huge history nut. I do love historical fiction. 
His book is not historical fiction, but there were so many questions that I didn't get to and things that I wanted to talk to him about. It'll be fun one day when I get to have him back on the show. And now, our insurance tip of the week, or story of the week, and this is actually a story. We had our, and I have on the t-shirt, it was our first annual Gib Agency Charity Cornhole Tournament, and it was a dramatic day. The Barbies went undefeated to win for. They were playing, uh, Paul Davis Restoration was the team, and they were playing for the MS Foundation, which is uh, benefiting multiple multiple sclerosis. And they went undefeated all day. They had good challenges by the social climbers and by the four beersmen, which was Mark Wetton and Foresight Security. They were the second place winners. They were playing for the Friends of Rowlett Animal Society. And so if you'd like to see pictures from that, you can go to our Facebook page and um, come join us next year. Thanks so much for being here. We are in Q4, which is always busy around here. So we'll see you again in two weeks. If you'd like to connect with us, please do at GibAgencyDallas.com. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>